Open your Bible with me to James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let me just say before we read and ask the Lord for his assistance in rightly understanding and responding to his word, that although uh, James does not use language like testing or trial or some such thing in verses 9 through 11, I think probably James does have in mind the sort of mindset that one needs to maintain or needs to keep when they're in the midst of trials, in part because... The discussion that he started in verses 2 through 4, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, right? God is doing something in your trial. He's perfecting you. And then verse 5, as you're in that trial, as you need wisdom to know how to walk, how to navigate your way through the trial, ask for wisdom, God will give it to you. Verses 9 through 11 talk about rightly assessing who has the true advantage, those who seem to be down and out or those who seem to be riding high in life. And in verse 12, he comes back to the idea of persevering under trial. So unless in verses 9 through 11, he just sort of jumps over to a completely separate or distinct topic, we might consider that what James says here in verses 9 through 11 to us this morning is in some way connected to the way that we think about ourselves, about our brothers and sisters as we go through the trials of life. What will our perspective be as we compare ourselves to the relative good or bad, ease or conflict that we see happening around us. So in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, follow along with me. The brother of humble or lowly circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, would you stir and awaken cold and sluggish hearts? mind first and foremost. Help us, Father, to be reminded of the riches that are ours in Christ, of the joy that has been offered to us now and that will be enjoyed in full in an eternal kingdom. Father, we would ask that if there is anyone here this morning who is finding their hope and their pleasure in the wealth and the comfort and the pleasures of this life, that you would, in grace and in kindness to them, open their eyes to see just how empty and bankrupt they are. Cause them to see their need for a Savior to be delivered from the wrath to come. 
We ask, Father, that you would accomplish your work in our hearts and minds so that your Son would be magnified through the building up of your people by your word, according to the power of your Spirit. Amen. So James 1, 9 through 11. Let me do a couple things before we actually start. The whole gist of this is, uh, in ter- framing it positively at least, is going to be seen or stated in the very first verse, in verse 9. So James is wanting to convince us of the fact that lowly people, and by lowly people he probably means most, if not all of us, lowly people actually occupy a very high position. may not always look that way, but that's, in truth, reality. There are two things that he does. One, he starts off in verse 9 by encouraging us, by directing us, maybe even commanding us, because it is in the form of a command, to take pride or to glory in our high position. And then secondly... He sort of feeds on that idea of us finding our glory and our delight in our high position by contrasting our position with the position of, as James says in verse 10, the rich man. Two different standings, two different fates. So before we look at that, though, I I want to try to sort of do some, some level setting or define some terms so that we don't have to spend time going back and forth as we work our way through. There are two primary questions that are typically asked when you come to this passage. All right, let me start with what probably is the easier one to answer, and then I'll go to the one that's a little bit more difficult and not so easily, uh, not so easy to, to be dogmatic about. Number one, depending on how your English version reads, you have in verse 9 the statement that the brother of humble or lowly circumstances is to glory in his high position. ESV, I think, might say something like to boast in. And NIV says to take pride in his high position. Of course, that doesn't sit well or doesn't fall well on our ears because we've been told all our lives that boasting and pride, right, is is a bad thing. Why in the world, then, would James be instructing a Christian to boast, to brag, to be prideful? And he is talking to a, to a Christian, by the way, because he refers to him, this Christian, as a brother. Is boasting, is pride, is that a bad thing? Well, it depends on what you're boasting about. It depends on what you're taking pride in. So, for example, Paul will say in Romans 5 that having been justified with Christ, we have peace with God, and we boast, same word that James uses in verse 9, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. There is a way and a right way for Christians to boast and to take pride. That is, when they're boasting in what God has done. Later in his letter to the first Corinthians, Paul will quote approvingly an Old Testament verse that says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then in a slightly different context, as he's writing to the Thessalonian believers, 
He says to them that because of their growth and maturity in the faith, because of their faithfulness in the midst of difficulty and trial and testing, that he and his fellow workers in the gospel boast about them to all the other churches that they come into contact with. Paul boasts, takes pride in the work that God is doing to establish these Christians. So it is possible to boast in the right way. It is possible for a Christian to have a righteous kind of pride, which is what James is after here, and that's what we want to explore and say, well, what is it exactly that we're supposed to be pridefully, joyfully confident about? That's, that's the first answer. So boasting or glorying or taking pride in our high standing is a good and appropriate thing so long as it's directed to the right object or goal. The second and the more difficult question is, in verse 10, who is the rich man that James refers to? And it basically come, comes down to this. The question is, <clears throat> we, we know that the person in lowly or humble circumstances in verse 9 is a Christian because he's referred to as a brother. When you get to verse 10, James does not say the rich brother is to glory in his humiliation. He just simply says the rich man. So the question is, are we to understand the rich man that James talks about in verse 10 as being, as being a believer himself or a Christian, or is this someone who's not a Christian that James is referring to? And there are reasons that you could fall, on, you could fall to one side or the other in trying to answer that question. I'm going to say for our purposes today that James has in mind in verse 10 when he refers to the rich man that he is talking about someone who is not a Christian, someone that is not following Christ. That as far as James is concerned in the context of his letter, that James would in some ways almost equate the rich with being the wicked. Let me, let me show you why. Look at two places all in James. Start in chapter 2. Look at verses 6 and 7. There are two other places outside of our passage today where James makes reference to the rich. And in both of his other mentions of the rich, they are entirely negative. So in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally, or is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So in 2, 6, and 7, the rich are the ones who are oppressing the Christians that James is writing to. They are ones who are blaspheming, speaking evil and wicked things about Jesus Christ. And then when you skip a little bit further into the letter, later in chapter 5, look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. If you skip down a little bit further, he goes on with a, a pretty bleak or a pretty condemning description of the rich in terms of their abuse of the poor. 
the abuse of the laborers who work in their fields that give them the ability to increase their wealth. And he says in 5, 5 and 6, You have lived, you rich, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have, content, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So I think that what James is doing when we go back to 1, 9 through 11, that James is contrasting for the sake of his specific audience in broad general categories, the Christian who is lowly and humble and in very difficult circumstances with the wicked or the evil who are rich and comfortable and profitable. Now, let me pause right here and say something very quickly. Do not fall prey to the notion that there is virtue in poverty in and of itself. You know what we mean by that? You, in other words, poverty does not make someone more virtuous. Just like riches in and of themselves, in and of itself, does not make someone more wicked. So the issue here is not first and foremost merely about one's bank account or one's investments. But it is to say that in the, the time in which James is writing and to the people that James is writing to, that by and large, the Christians, those who have been chosen by God, just so happen to be the down and out. Whereas the ones who are living life to the fullest, having their best life now, to coin a phrase, are the people who are not in fellowship with the Lord at all. You cannot judge one's standing by their social standing. So come with me then to one nine. The brother of humble or the brother of lowly circumstances, is to glory in his high position. Because this brother who is in lowly or humble circumstances is in contrast to the rich that James talks about in verse 10, we might consider that this lowly brother is a poor brother. He does not have material means at his disposal. But there is a word that James could have used that actually just means strictly poor, and he doesn't use it here. So while James is probably addressing Christians who are poor, right? They're the scattered abroad in 1-1 as he opens, which means they don't have a support network. They don't have a safety net. They're probably living hand-to-mouth. They probably most likely are poor, but because James does not actually use the word for poor and he uses the word for lowly or humble, this statement in verse 9 could apply to any set of circumstances that are less than desirable. So a low and humble brother could be someone who is dealing with terminal illness. Disease and sickness will bring you low. A lowly brother or sister may be one who is struggling to get by because of dysfunction in the family. 
because of estrangement from a spouse or from children. It may be someone who has been made low because of the difficulties and the stresses and the pressure that they're experiencing at work. To bend to the sensibilities of this cultural moment or climate or to those in the classroom who are being told that there is really only one right way to see this particular issue. Right? All of those things can count as lowliness or humility. And to those people, to those Christians who are low and humble, James says, you ought to take joyful pride in your high position. What high position? James, have you seen where I live? Have you seen the menial, mindless job that I have to perform day in and day out? Have you seen all of the disadvantages that I have to fight through and struggle with? Have you seen, do you know the lack of respect that comes my way because I'm one of those Bible thumpers? What are you talking about? High position. We're the lowly and the despised, James says, not true. What is this high position that James talks about? Well, it's got to be something different than the wealth and the comfort that he describes when he talks about the rich in verses 10 and 11. I think James probably goes to a clear depiction of what he has in mind when he talks about the high position that is ours in Christ later on in this letter in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. We read verses 6 and 7 where he is condemning the rich for oppressing the Christian and for blaspheming Christ. But go up to the verse just before. Go to 2.5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? That's it. That's the high position. Rich in faith, although poor in money. Heirs of a kingdom although you own and possess next to nothing in this life. Now, stick with me in 2.5 here for a moment, because this is important. It is somewhat typical, or at least tempting, to read that statement in 2.5, that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised, to read that, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, both of those things as being future-oriented. So that what James is talking about in 2.5 is, even though you're poor now, one day you will in fact be rich because of the blessings of God. That is true. 
right? Not going to deny that. I don't think that that is the full or complete picture that James is getting at. I think what James is doing in 2.5 is that he is saying that all of this is of one piece, meaning rich in faith now, you are rich now in faith. In the realm, in the sphere of what faith grants you, you are rich. And you will be rich when you inherit all that God has promised to you in the future. Do you hear that? So in 1.9, when James says that the brother in lowly circumstances, the, bro the brother, the sister who is humble and downtrodden and an outcast ought to glory, take joyful pride in their high position... I don't think that what James has in mind is buck up because someday out there, there will be a better day. James is meaning to say, you have reason to rejoice right now. You have riches that have been given to you now. You can find comfort and you can find joy in the life that you have received through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you can know that now, experientially, in this life. You have reason to be joyful and proud for what God in His grace has lavished upon you. Do you think of yourself as being rich? in Christ. Do you think of yourself as being rich in Christ? Do you know yourself to be rich in Christ? Do you know the joy and the delight that comes in union with your Savior? Do you know by experience, the unbelievable privilege that is yours in Christ to approach an infinite God, a sovereign ruler, a righteous judge, and call him Father. Do you know by experience the hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by His Spirit whom He has given to us? Do you know riches that cannot be measured by the metrics of this life, of this world, of this age? Do you know riches that because they do not come from this natural order, do you know yourself to be rich in ways that can never, ever be taken from you?
go with me back to the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Let me, let me, I, I just want to dwell on this a little bit more and try to flesh it out in different words or different language to try to drive this home. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then notice verses 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is the tense? What is the verb tense? Raised us up with him. That's something that has been done. Seated us with him in the heavenly places. You do not get higher than the heights of heaven where Christ is ruling and reigning. That's where you are if you're in Christ. Now, and then he goes on to say in verse 7, one of the reasons that he has raised us up now, given us a high position, high standing through Christ, is so that, in verse 7, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? God has given you, if you belong to him in Christ, God has given you now riches to be enjoyed and drawn upon in your union and fellowship with Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. He does that so that you can draw on that account now so that you will have more confidence that the riches that you are enjoying in this present life will only be surpassed by the riches that you will enjoy in the life to come. When you start to see this, when you start to know this, right? when your mind is renewed to see life this way, to measure life through the lens of eternity, all this other stuff doesn't mean anything anymore. It pales in comparison. It's cheap. It's not going to last. Not to mention the fact that if you turn over a few more pages from Ephesians, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul talking about the humility of the Son of God in taking on a human nature like ours. He humbled himself by becoming like us. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 8 and 9. 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now pause right there for a minute. Once again, I'm reading from New American Standard, so your, your version may read a little bit different. But that, that phrase, that statement, he humbled himself. That's the verbal form of the word that James uses in 1.9 when he says the brother of lowly or humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. That word for lowliness and humility in James 1.9 is the verb that's being used in Philippians 2.8, meaning that Jesus has done what you are doing right now, and he did it not because he had to. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is nothing more shameful and bankrupt than the death of crucifixion. And then verse 9, for this reason, because he made himself low, because he made himself humble in order to save the lowly and the humiliated, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. That verb, highly exalted, is the verbal form of what James uses in 1.9 when he says that we ought to glory in our high position. That high position is what happened because of the obedient humiliation of Christ in Philippians 2, 8, and 9. Christ was hyper-exalted. All of this is abstract, right? Nice connection. Oh, what a coincidence. Here's the point, people. When you, when you realize that God is not calling you to live anything more than what he had his son live, it will change the way that you view your circumstances in life. You view your low and humiliating and desperate circumstances as something to be shunned, as something to escape, as something to get away from. And your Savior came and willingly, freely took that shame and humiliation on himself so that you could be here today praising him. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That exalting, that raising up of his son is the exalting and raising up that is already at work for God's people by his spirit who lives within us. We have been brought from the depths of the grave and raised up to be made alive in Christ. We have been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. And one day we will be glorified and exalted by being made rulers and co-heirs with Christ in a kingdom that can never be shaken. That is your gift that is your birthright in Christ. 
If you have Christ, you have it all. Back to James. What then do we say about the rich? Who for all intents and purposes seems to be those who are comfortable in their alienation from God. Content, happy even, to be separated from God. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Notice, notice the two verbs that sort of act as bookends in this description. In verse 10... The rich man will pass away. And then down in verse 11, the rich man in the middle of his pursuits, while he is still active, will fade away. The difficulty with this is, but wait a minute. That same thing is going to happen to me. I'm going to pass away. I'm already in the process of fading away. My kids remind me every day. What, what is different about this fading away, this passing away, than is different from our fading and passing? The difference is that when the godless as rich and as comfortable, as affluent, as influential as they may be, when they fade away and when they die, they will be separated from their riches. When we fade away and die, we go to ours. That's the difference. And so wisdom, from God's perspective, is to see through the eyes of faith. You cannot judge and assess your standing with the Lord according to your creature comforts. Comfort is no guarantee that you have the Lord's favor. If anything, the scriptures and church history would tell us that nine times out of ten, it's the uncomfortable. It's those who are lacking who enjoy God's favor the most. If you had the opportunity to give everything, to live in poverty, but to know that you still had Christ, would you do it? Could you let comfort go for the sake of Christ? Or would you feel in your heart a certain pull or a certain tension that says, well, I'd like to have both. 
I want Christ, but I want the comfort of this world. I want Christ, but I don't want the shame and the humiliation that comes with following Him. I want to be acknowledged and recognized by the influencers. I don't want to be ostracized. People be very careful. For the sake of comfort, especially in a place as affluent and rich as the West and America in particular, people have wrecked their souls for the sake of cheap comfort. Paul will say that even the desire for money, even just the desire to be rich, not even to get hold of it, to lay hold of it or to have it, just your desire that causes you to pursue the things of this world, even that desire and pursuit is sufficient to ruin your faith. Have you ever thought in that light that one of the kindest things that God has done for you is not to give you all that you want. That because he has not given you the riches of this world, because he has not given you the high standing or the high profile on social media, or Instagram, or the talking heads, that because you are a small, despised few, that he has done that for you so that he would guard you and keep you safe until the end. And that your lowliness is not only modeled after the lowliness of your Savior who bought you and redeemed you, but your lowliness itself is a sign that God favors you because he is protecting you. Turn with me to Psalm 73. If there is a way to dramatize James 1, 9 through 11, you would be hard-pressed to find a better dramatization than what you hear in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 starts out with a confession. Surely God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. But, verse 2, my feet came close to stumbling... My steps had almost slipped. I almost lost my spiritual footing. Why? Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble like other men, nor are they plagued like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. 
They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. They get what they want. They do what they want. They say what they want. They live how they want. And they love doing it. And the psalmist will say, when I look at how easy the wicked have it and how hard the righteous have it, I'm starting to think, that I've got it all wrong. I should have thrown my lot in with the wicked. Look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, that is, why the wicked are wealthy and comfortable and why the righteous suffer, and are low. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I saw. Then I perceived their end. In his light, the psalmist sees rightly the way that this world and the future is ordered. He sees that as comfortable and secure as what the wicked appear right now, they are on thin ice. They are here one minute and they are gone the next. They are snuffed out when the Lord turns to act in judgment. And then notice how the psalmist closes out the chapter. He has gone from trouble to praise. Not because the righteous now all of a sudden have it easy in this life. Not because the wicked are no longer comfortable. The circumstances remain the same. It's his perspective that has changed. And so he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Can you say that? Can you sing that? The nearness of God is my good. God help me, but there is nothing more than I want than more of Him. And the scriptures are telling us that as we find our refuge in God, as we set our minds on Christ, as we are renewed daily by the Spirit, we can begin to see more clearly that the humble in Christ have been granted already infinite riches that we have only just begun to enjoy. And that the sacrifices of this life will look small and insignificant in the light of eternity. What is 80 years of this life compared to 80,000 in eternity? Eight hundred thousand eight million to a life that doesn't end this life is a vapor 
we have all that we need in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. We are so easily distracted, so easily tempted and enamored by the things of this world. We far too often look more like Esau being willing to trade our birthright for a single meal rather than go hungry and feeding on the bread of life. We praise you, Father, that because we belong to you, that for your children we know that even though our hearts are weak and riddled with impurities, that you have made it new and that you will continue to grow us in our love and affection for you in Christ Jesus, that your spirit will renew our minds and that we will be perfected day by day until we one day stand before you full and complete and blameless. As we walk the path that has been laid out for us by Christ, we ask that you would give us endurance and strength of heart, that you would keep our eyes fixed on the prize that is to be rewarded us in the life to come, that we would find our encouragement and our stability in the riches that are ours now, being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, with all of the spiritual blessings that have been granted to us already. May that kind of reckless disregard for the passing pleasure of sin and the rewards of this life cause people to stop and to take notice and to ask what it is that we have that they are missing. And Father, as we close, we would ask that if there is anyone here today who has not come to know the infinite wisdom and riches that are available in Christ Jesus, that you would convict them of their emptiness, of their spiritual bankruptcy, of the right judgment that awaits them so that they would flee to Christ and find forgiveness and pardon and new life. Build us up in our faith, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.